This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobeski, suggested we watch the 1980 movie, The Kong Show Movie, written by and starring Chuck Barris, the host of The Kong Show. Uh, but but instead, uh, we decided to go with a different sort of uh, unreliable narration with the 1950 Akira Kurosawa film, Rashomon. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm your first guest today. And I'm uh, Adam Gobeski. I'm your executive producer. Well, not your executive producer, but I'm this show's executive producer. And I am also your first guest. And I'm Amber Elby. I don't know if I'm a guest or a host, but I'm only here because Charlie promised to do a future episode about The Greatest Showman with me. And don't you dare cut this because I'm going to hold you to it. (laughs) Totally cut. Gone. Uh, the ex- executive producer told us so. So it's out of my hands, Amber. <laughs> well, yeah. But looking back over our previous episodes, this actually turns out it's our fourth Ford film we've done. Uh, the groundbreaking Akira Kurosawa directed uh, film Rashomon. Adam chose the movie Hello. this week. Um, I know. I keep picking foreign films. You keep, you keep picking foreign films, but you actually this time you picked one that none of us have seen. So there's really no distinction between guest and co-host today, as all of us have been on the show multiple, multiple times. Hence the introduction. Yes. But Amber, thank you very much for being back on the show. Thanks for having me. You know, there's a lot you want to say about this. this there movie. is. Do you want to ask me or do you want me to just start rambling? <laughs> well, well, we sh- before we do that, we should establish the storyline such as it is sure <laughs> so we'll we'll step through uh each of the individual narrator's stories as uh we go along but uh general synopsis is that um it's a story of a lovely lady <laughs> no it's the story of a murder a guy's who murdered is... and there are three flashbacks and who, you don't know is, which one is true who is bringing up three very lovely girls <laughs> <laughs> I so, just lied. There are four flashbacks. I missold this thing already. Right. So, three, so you're an unreliable narrator. <laughs> yes, it was all on purpose. Three men are waiting out a storm underneath a gate, uh, the, Rash- the Rashomon Gate. Hence the name. And one of them is being told a story of a court case that just recently went on with three parties involved. Uh, and all you have to say is that Rashomon is the story. Of, all right, you're right. It's harder than I thought. No, I have it. I have it. (laughs) All right. uh, It's a 1950s Japanese memento. (laughs) I don't think that's sufficient enough for a synopsis, though. (laughs) Except it's told in this film. Except it's told chronologically forward. (laughs) No, it isn't. They have flashbacks. Well, yeah, but the flashbacks are told. (laughs) But memento flashbacks too. (laughs) (laughs) I. I've never actually seen Memento, so that doesn't mean it's anything to me. Not worth it. Um, but okay. So, so I'll, should we I'll establish? Do... Should we establish ahead of time that Amber's taste in movies is very idiosyncratic? Yes, I think we should. <laughs> Let me introduce myself. So I'm Amber Elby. I have an MFA in screenwriting, which is why Charlie puts up with me being on here. I'm also. <laughs> I don't think that's why. It's because, but, I've, okay. it's because I've known these guys since we were in high school. So thank you for having me. But um, I also write books and you can find them. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Amber Elby. 
And I like Shakespeare a lot, which is what my books are about. But I also like films that other people don't. And I don't like films that other people like. So I'm usually on here to be the foil, I think, and to complain about the film. Is that a coincidence or is that a deliberate choice? It's because my taste is better than everyone else's. (laughs) It just happens to be the case, I think. Like, I went into this film thinking I would actually like it, despite one of my college professors telling me not to watch it because I would not like it. But I I gave it a chance. So it's not the case that you're just full-blown hipster. No. Despite living in the Austin area. I'm pretty high in the hipster spectrum, though. Um, Not surprised. (laughs) Yeah. But yes, Rashomon. uh, Three men waiting out a storm under the giant Rashomon gate, now dilapidated, and recounting the events of a rape and murder that happened earlier. And one of the characters, the woodcutter, is confused because the versions of the story that he heard are all conflicting with each other. And so he doesn't understand what's going on. And so the commoner who is also there asks the woodcutter to explain the events. And so he sort of asks probing questions. And we learn that either some of the narrators are lying or possibly that they perceive things in a different way. So it's not the first instance in cinematic or literary history of having an unreliable narrator, for sure. But it is... It's not? <laughs> no. Wait, There's Citizen, Citizen Kane, right? Citizen Kane? It came out in 41. Well, no, I get that. I just... Uh... You don't think in any book ever? <laughs> I'm no, is... no I, I'm not quibbling about the book. I'm quibbling about the, the cinematic part. Oh. I think, generally speaking, the way cinema works up to this point is that it shows you what happened unless it's explicitly a flashback, right? But then they'll have like voiceover and stuff to indicate that. And that I don't think happens that often up to this point. So are you saying that prior to this, you could believe films? Yes. I think the idea is that the camera works as an impartial, omnipresent narrator. You know, you you see reality. The camera shows you what happened. And I think this is a movie where you can't trust what the camera shows you anymore. Right. At the very least, it was something that was extremely uncommon. At least we can agree on that. But yes. Yes. And certainly there weren't any instances of multiple perspectives of the exact same event being shown. I mean, you immediately know that at most one of the stories could be true, but probably that none of them are. So there's four different narratives being displayed over the course of the film. Or that they're all true. Or that they're all true in their their own way, yes. But not all of them can't be literally true. It de- well, so I think we'll get into this, right? But I suspect oh, sure. part yeah. of it has to deal with how each of the narrators perceives reality. But the whole point is that nothing's true. Nothing's ever true. And it, I mean, this has a lot to do with justice and stuff, too, which wasn't one of the things we plan on talking about before the show. But um, it, it's really interesting to kind of consider, is anything ever true? Uh, before Which, we get <laughs> to say before we get into heavy subjects like that, maybe we all ought to talk about what did we think this movie was going to be? It was quite a bit different than I expected, considering I knew the general idea that we'd be seeing the same story from different viewpoints. Yeah, I I mean, I went into the movie knowing that I mean, this movie is famous enough that just other movies like it are described as like Rashomon. The name of the movie has entered the language to some degree when describing stories like this. But all I was really aware of was that uh, like a murder happens and there's four different versions of describing what happened to the murder. And that's about all I knew going into it. 
Yeah, I knew that this was going to have sword fights, which I was very excited about. I also knew that it's on pretty much every syllabus for like film 101, history of film, film as literature. Uh, So I knew it was going to be a quote unquote important film. Um, But I didn't see it. I somehow avoided it because I didn't take that many undergrad film classes. Also Uh, because your professor told you not to watch it. Yeah. And it was funny because it came up in a screenwriting class and we were talking about flashbacks and he was like, oh, it's just a perfect example of flashbacks. And it set all this, it set the stage for all these future films and everything. And I was like, this sounds really good. And he kind of looked at me and was like, Amber, you would not like it. Um, And he was right. (laughs) So your, your teacher's intent was to only steer you towards movies that you would like. (laughs) And it's funny because going over my list of things I wanted to talk about, I should like it. All of the things that I like, I really, really like in everything else. But there's just one thing that really bothers me. <laughs> should we just get the thing out so you stop dancing around it? We, we know what you're talking yes. about. OK, sure. so this is this is my huge emotional response that is in no way logical because logically I should like the movie. But from an emotional standpoint, as soon as a woman is raped and she likes it, I am done with the film. That's the unforgivable thing in this movie. That's like, what I thought you was. This yeah, it was yeah. going to be your thing about it. And if they had given the woman's perspective first, I think I would have felt differently. But because we start out with the toxic masculinity narrative of the the bandit, and I do like bandits, I should say, as an archetype. Like I love highwaymen, pirates, types. But he was just beyond the pale. Um, I couldn't forgive the filmmaker. And I understand that it was supposed to be a character reaction where I was supposed to say, I don't know how I feel about you as a character. But instead, I was like, I hate the filmmaker. And I couldn't get past that for the rest of the movie. But isn't it the point that that's the bandit Tajamar's version of the story? So, of course, she's going to like what he's doing to her in that version of the story. Yes. And logically, I completely agree with you. But emotionally, because it was the first version that we saw, I couldn't get over it. If you had just switched the woman's story with the bandit story so that hers was first, would that have gone a long way for you? It would have, because I felt like one of the arguments that was being made by having his first was this is the one that you should believe. Like, I felt like that was the filmmaker trying to tell me that. And I didn't like that. Oh, wow. I don't think that's true at all. (sighs) That's because you paid attention after that point. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so you admit this is your fault. (laughs) Well, I started hate watching it at that point. There was a lot of eye rolling and complaining and cursing. So the film kind of pushed me out of its imaginary world and into my own anger. You so so you knew ahead of time though that it was going to be these differing stories and unreliable narration. Yeah, I knew the murder. I didn't know about the rape. Okay, but did you at that point in the movie know that this was just a story a version of the story i did but i didn't that was going to be countered at some point in the majority of the perspectives that we see it is presented really similarly to the first story um in terms of how the rape is kind of talked away um and so once the first one was there i was like well this is going to be one of the things that's more or less the same um throughout most of the upcoming narratives so as i said i started hate watching because i can i can definitely see that reaction to it if you didn't know how the film was going to go, like if you'd watched it back in 1950, you didn't know the background that this was just one of many stories that was going to be told. But while I agree that that was a little bit rough to see presented that way, like I, I'm with Adam in that I knew that of the different people, this was probably going to be the perhaps the least reliable of the stories told. 
But still, the filmmaker chose to put it in there, and he so did. that's who I got angry at. Okay. But he's doing that for a deliberate reason. Right? Which logically I understand, but emotionally I'm still hung up on it. Okay. I mean, I can't argue with that. Like, if you have an emotional, re- you're supposed to have emotional right. reactions to movies, and if that's what it was, that's that's what it was. But I do think it's interesting to consider how it would have played differently in 1950. I don't think the people who originally saw it would have had the same post hashtag Me Too movement reactions that I have. So I I do think from if you look at it historically, it wouldn't have been an issue. I mean, I do agree with you that, yeah, I think given our current 2018 environment with Me Too and all that stuff that, yeah, this movie does play very differently from how it would have played even 10 years ago. Because I will admit that my initial reaction to the, the her getting into it right was like, oh, gosh. Right. Like I was actually also repulsed by that. Um, I think just though maybe that one of the differences between our watchings, our perceptions of the film, I guess I'm not quite sure what I want to say. Sort of like viewings, but not like the way we watch the film, I guess is what I'm saying. Experience. Is that is that. uh, Yeah, I'm experienced. Sure. Um, Is that um, I knew that a Taj Omar is not a trust. he, He has already established himself to not be a trustworthy narrator. Right. Like he's contradicting what people are saying to make himself look better. Like, oh, I wasn't thrown off a horse. I was, you know, I had a stomach ache from earlier stuff like that. Right. And like the way like they that he like leads them off, like he holds himself very like I'm the hero of this story. And so I already was like, okay, well, that's like, yeah, that's really like gross and stuff. But I don't know that I have any reason to believe him at this point. And that is partly because I went in knowing that you're going to get multiple versions of the story and not everyone's trustworthy, which may not have been the case in 1950. Yeah. In that sense, I actually really liked that. I didn't think about the fact that the bandit is presented immediately as a liar. So they have those scenes about him falling off the horse so that, you know, immediately going into his story that there there's obvious fabrications in it, whereas the other characters don't have that. Or at least that there's some doubt about his story. Yes. That he's, exactly. already, he's already conflicting with uh, the policeman's story. Not- and you thought we wouldn't bring him up. <laughs> and, and it also starts out when it shows him, it is a wonderful POV shot of the clouds. And so it's showing him kind of staring into space, presumably fabricating what he was going to say, um, which is, I, I love that shot. But um, yeah, I, I agree with you guys completely about this. I just... I have my feelings. No, sure. Yeah. You actually, though, just bringing up uh, as a side note, but I think we should talk about the cinematography of like the opening. Like, so if you get that opening shot of like this downpour of rain and then the woodcutter starts describing what happened. And then you get that gorgeous tracking shot into the forest that just like there's no dialogue. It just runs for like fairly extended period of time, a number of minutes with just like the shadows and the sunlight just you know, interplaying on the woodcutter as he walks his way into the forest. And not even just the cinematography, but the set design too. And all of the stuff that went into building the world where the movie takes place. was really above par for back in the day, especially. Yeah. There's a, there's a funny story about the set design. So when Kurosawa went to, I think like the head of Dai, the, the film production company and was like, we should, you know, I want to make Rashomon stuff. And he was like, there's only two sets 
there's the Rashomon gate and then there's the courtyard and the courtyard will be really simple. And the president of Dae was like, oh, yeah, sure. Great. Two sets. Awesome. Go for it. That'll be nice and cheap. Right. Not realizing that in order to build the dilapidated Rashomon gate would be incredibly expensive. And apparently the president afterwards was annoyed at him and said something <laughs> to the effect of I could have had 10 sets for the one, the cost of this one set. And what's great is they pull part of it apart in the film, too. They pull the boards off from it. And yeah. I was kind of thinking, like, I hope that was one take. I hope they didn't have to keep on putting boards up and pulling them back down. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I thought that set was completely worth it. That I thought that was oh, a yeah. great setup to, to have the characters who are recounting the different versions of the story be in well, the sort of in-between location, you know, with the downpour. They're recounting the recount, though. Sorry yeah, to exactly. talk over you. No, no, not at all. No, no. We both <laughs> talk too much. Please talk over us. <laughs> um, well, so the woodcutter, right, uh, part of it is actually his narration because he discovered the body, right? And then the priest knows something of the tale because the, the woman arrived at his uh, monastery or temple. Or and whatever, he saw them on the road. And he saw them on the road ahead of time. And just, yeah. So they do. It's not that they're completely impartial narrators at this point. The only impartial person we get is the commoner. Right. Who is very skeptical from start to finish. Or at least just asking questions. Oh, right? like, yeah. wait, what's going on? Well, skeptical. Yeah. In the sense that. Oh, skeptical in the classic sense. Yes. The classic nice. sense. Yeah. Um, nice. But this yeah. is what I mean, though. We're talking too much. Amber should talk. <laughs> oh, no, I was just thinking that I, I don't know if the commoner is completely impartial. We don't know how he's involved since the whole thing is about we don't know exactly what happened. If you we could go into fan fiction theories with this, maybe he's the murderer. <laughs> you don't even know. Because at the end, he proves himself to be not a sympathetic character. He steals from a baby. So I don't think murder would be something beyond what he could do. Well, but I mean, look at that baby. That baby <laughs> had it coming. Oh, it had, the, it had the hungry cry. It broke my heart. It had the cry where it like was going yeah and that that mean, meant it was hungry so i was like they're starving the baby to get it to cry for the film and then presumably they feed it to make it not cry and i was like this was before they had all of the uh protections for children on sets like we have now <laughs> that is a subtlety i did not pick up on <laughs> you're also assuming that that's not just added in the cry that's true it was a real baby the whole time that was impressive not like a doll that was the alternative to an unreal bait. Like, that would be unreal. That's what I meant. But we are probably. jumping way We are. Story. It's a huge <laughs> tangent. We're like, and now to the last 30 seconds of the film. Yeah. So the tracking shot through the forest, right, sort of metaphorically leads you into the woods as far as the story goes, right, of where it's not going to be clear cut in any way. And, you know, there's going to be light fighting with shadow and stuff like that. It's a really nice symbolic shot. Right. Because from like a logical standpoint, right, there's no reason that the woodcutter has to go that deep into the woods to find wood to cut. Right. I was watching with my husband and during all those shots, I turned to him and I was like, someone really likes filming the woods because this serves no part for the actual story because it was boot leather or just showing people getting from one place to another. I feel like there's more than half an hour of just like pretty shots of the forest and people walking through the forest. But I think that's deliberate. I don't think oh, that's it was not for sure. Serving. I'm not I don't think that's serving no purpose. I think that's serving a very clear purpose of like leading us into the forest where like anything can happen, right? We're away from civilization. Right. Everything's obscured. Yeah. Right. This is the film as literature aspect, not the film as entertainment. Or were you guys excited? Well, you like Lord of the Rings, right? The Lord of the Rings films. 
Wait, are you dissing on the Lord of the Rings films? I'm saying that I don't like them because there's too much walking and looking at pretty things. And this, I felt, <laughs> was the same. You have the weirdest taste in movies. I know I do. <laughs> what is your favorite movie? Let's establish oh, a that's baseline. That's so hard. We'll just name a couple then. I like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I like them with strong scripts. Um, I like Quills, which I've bothered you about before. I like the stuff that's writing heavy with lots of dialogue. My favorite stuff's TV. I'm rewatching Battlestar Galactica now from 2004. So my favorite series. So I like the stuff where there's a lot of dialogue and uh. a really strong script. So for this one, I feel like it had a 20 page script that was stretched into an hour and a half, which it, it's not my cup of tea. So you don't like silent movies then? I do love silent movies. Actually, the film that I saw right before this was Metropolis, which I love, but it, it moves the plot along uh, in a different pace than Rashomon. Because Kurosawa is deliberately attempting to, you know, essentially do a silent film at this point. He loves silent films too, right? And where one of the things about silent films is it's really hard to express stuff through dialogue because you have to stop the action and show an inner title. Right. So right. it's much better to, you know, just have things conveyed via, you know, facial expressions and body language. And that's a lot of what he's doing here. And you could see the kind of homage to silent films, too, because there was a lot of steady camera interspersed with the, the panning shots and the swipes and the things that were more modern. But during the whole uh, sequence, when they're in before the court, before the judge, it's a steady shot. And I felt so much like that was just taken out of an old silent film. I think the acting too kind of speaks to that fact as well. It's a lot of very, a lot of very deliberate sort of motion and facial expressions, especially from Toshiro Mifune, who plays the bandit. He does a lot of really maniacal laughter and like squirming around, like in that courtroom scene, he squirms around a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of melodrama just throughout the whole thing, laying in the ground crying, where you don't have to write the dialogue. See, I think if you took out the laying in the ground crying and the shots of the woods, the actual action would be 45 minutes of film. Well, yeah, but that's like the Donald Trump approach to watching movies, right? Of just fast forward to the action scenes. And nobody wants that. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I, that was obviously not the intent of the film, but those were some of the things that personally made it not as exciting for me as Battlestar Galactica, which I watched immediately after. I just rolled my eyes at you. I don't know if you... I could feel it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Says the man who has not seen Battlestar Galactica. It's it's on the list, but... I know enough about Battlestar Galactica, and I know enough about Rashomon to know that comparing them is kind of like apples and oranges. <laughs> yeah, but this this sequence got started by you asking me what I like. No, that's that is that is fair. You are you are correct. <laughs> Mea culpa. Okay, so are we going to try to talk about this in order? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're just talking about the cinematography mostly at the beginning of the film, which leads us into the clearing for the first time, and we get the. Bandit's story of events. I, I did have such high expectations for this. As soon as they were like, how did they describe him? It wasn't notorious. Famed? I forgot the exact word. I was hoping for like a Dick Turpin type with someone who had a reputation amongst the people and this really cool bandit. And then it stuck me with the rape thing that I've already mentioned and I lost it. But what, what were your reactions to it? I mean, I think the thing to note about Tajamar's the bandit's story, right, is... 
despite the fact that he's committing, you know, these despicable acts, he's portraying himself as, you know, heroic, right? And and the the cinematography at this point during his story sort of shows that, right? Like the sword fight that they have is a very traditional samurai film conventions, right? And the way that they confront each other, it's all very noble. It's, you know, they have like a, a proper quote unquote fight sword duel. But despite that, right, like Tajomaru admits to being the killer. So he's not telling this story to not be convicted of the crime because he says, no, I killed him. And he's, wow. and he's like amazed by like how fierce the woman is and how good the samurai was and battling him. Or like no one's gone like 20 blows with me, stuff it's, like that. It's really interesting to go through the different stories because this is actually the one where. So despite coming from the bandit, he comes off honorably. And also the man that he claims to have killed comes off pretty honorably as well like he says that like he lasted a lot longer than anyone else would have lasted against me and it's so interesting too in that part because his motivation is clear it's that he wants to perpetuate his own myth he wants to build himself up in the memories of people and so this is his chance to record his deeds in a public way presumably before he's executed for other crimes and uh, or at least imprisoned and so he is just probably executed in japan yeah yeah 12th century japan i think yeah yeah, so he's he's building himself up. And I loved how with all the different stories, they, there was a pretty clear motivation for why they would change things the way they did. So maybe we should actually move on to the woman's story then, because she actually does survive the uh, the events. So she's able to, to tell her story. And that's the second of the primary narrations that we hear is her story. Yeah, I... I like how you fell into the that we hear, because what's so cool is that we see it. And we it's so hard to talk about this without using the terms we use for literature. But no, it, that, is it's, a, that is a very fair point. Yeah. That is a point I was that I was trying to bring up earlier that may or may not have survived to the final edit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think up to this point in cinema, the vast majority of the time we're meant to believe that anything that's presented on in shot is what happened, right? The camera's an impartial observer. It, it has no bias. And, you know, the more we can get into, like, film theory and stuff, we can talk about, like, you know, the things that the camera chooses to show you and doesn't show you, right? That is bias in itself. But generally speaking, we're meant to believe that what the camera shows us is what happened. And here is a case where outside of the shots at the Rashomon Gate and the shots in the courtyard, everything else, right, that the camera shows us is not reliable. We can't believe it that, okay, this is what actually happened. The neat thing is that it's not even subtly implying that somehow it shouldn't be trusted. It's that all of these things literally could not have happened. So there's no other conclusion to draw except that, yeah, we've completely changed how these sorts of stories are told. And one of the reasons they have to have such the uh, such beautiful cinematography is because for the flashback scene, so much is the same. Same costumes, same setting, uh, very similar events in each of them. Um, so you have to get creative as a filmmaker to not make your audience fall asleep when they see the same thing four times. So going into the woman's story, this is the version where after being raped, the bandit leaves and she's left with the man who's tied up, who almost refuses to look at her, looks at her with complete disdain, like she's completely yeah, worthless. Yeah, the male gaze going. Yeah, exactly. Which, which uh, 
it, it should be worth noted that's a, that's something of a stage convention, right? That's not necessarily things that would happen in real life, but that is the sort of thing that the way that these things would be portrayed in movies and stuff. And I think Kurosawa is very keenly aware of that and is leaning into that for this story. The idea of like, oh, you're you're soiled goods now, right? And so you're you're not worthwhile to me anymore. It, it reminded me so much of Hitchcock. I wrote Hitchcock in my notes. It's done elsewhere, too. The idea of just a guy staring and a woman reacting to it. Right. But I, I think I think Kurosawa is aware of that. I think he's deliberately playing into that here. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. So she grabs a knife, unties him, and then faints and falls forward. So she knows that when she wakes up, he's dead. She doesn't quite know how he died. I guess the implication could be either be that she fell into him and stabbed him or that someone else has come and stabbed him. So Yeah, that I, was when the commoner came in and killed him, right? So that's why the commoner's guilty. It totally fits. Oh, I see. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think that um, the implication we are meant to infer from this is that she killed him because of the way he looked at her. She then killed him. Right. I think yes. she's, she's meant to be confessing. I agree that it's not quite as uh well i uh, think clear, clear i think she's I think it's, confessing but in a way that she feels is most absolving of herself like well i did kill him but it was an accident where i fainted sort of like she does admit to fainting well she no, blacked no, no. out i think she blacks out because she killed him oh, not because okay. she felt it's not that she fell into him with the knife, right? I, I don't think that's what—that's not what you're meant to be, to believe. Okay, maybe it's just a little camera trick that made me think that. And and I I think that um it's perhaps a little more ambiguous in the Kurosawa, but in the uh, original uh, Akutagawa story that this is based on, In a Grove, uh, it does actually explicitly say that she stabbed him. I'm really glad you read that. It did. I was gonna. I was thinking I should read this, and then I thought. I just got asked to do this on Friday. I don't have time to prepare. <laughs> um, full disclosure, it's actually included in the Criterion uh, version. Oh, nice. That's how I read it. How long is it? it? Oh, it's only a few pages. In a Criterion booklet's worth, it's 10 pages. So it's not very long oh, at all. Not at all, yeah. And then uh, that also reprints the Rashomon story, which has very little to do, honestly, with the finished product. Other than that, things happen at Rashomon Gate. Um, but that's also printed here, and that's also about uh, six pages. Good job preparing, Adam. See, this is why uh, physical media still has its advantages, because you get cool <laughs> stuff like that. Oh, but when you rent it on Amazon, you get the trivia, which I'm going to put this in here now because it has to be in. There were slugs crawling on people when they were filming in the forest. And that's my favorite part of the movie, even though you can't see they it. They were falling so out of the trees onto people. <laughs> yeah, they had put salt on themselves. Ew. That's the best. <laughs> that's, uh, that's actually also in, in the Criterion booklet. Because oh, uh, well. <laughs> Kurosawa mentions that in the excerpt from his autobiography that's included in the book about Rashomon. Okay, basically, so you have the better version. Basically, I'm saying physical media forever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Wikipedia has been cobbled together just from the bonus materials. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I also, again, full disclosure, did listen to the commentary track subsequently with uh, Donald Ritchie, who is a really well-known uh critic of Japanese film. In fact, one of the people that sort of brought Japanese film to prominence in the Western world, right? Like he was one of the like major proponents early on. Some of the stuff that I am noting, I'm noting because Donald Ritchie told me about it. Uh, So Amber, what did you think about? Okay, so we know your feelings about the bandit story. 
what were your feelings about this one being told from the woman's perspective? Oh, well, first of all, I did just pour more sake for myself wearing glass too. <laughs> and um, I, I didn't like hers. Oh, I mean, this was after I started hate watching. So I was very critical. But what <laughs> yeah. bothered me about this is the whole time I was screaming in my head, just go and untie your husband. And it took her way too long. And I was so distracted by that, that a lot of the beauty of the scene and the acting and all of those subtleties that I'm sure you all liked were just lost on me because I was like, don't just stand there. I would like to point out that she's just suffered through a very traumatic experience and so maybe not be thinking clearly. It didn't play as being traumatic, though. It, It felt... Even from her perspective? I need to go back further. When the film started and we see the images of of the husband, of the man and the woman going down the trail and she's up on the horse and has her face covered. She is not a character. She's not a person. She's a MacGuffin. She's something that the bandit wants. She's something to be desired. So I had trouble switching from that idea of her not being a real person to her suddenly being a real person, especially when she wasn't Uh, as powerful in terms of what she actually did and could do as the bandit. And I understand that it was there to be a contrast to the bandit story, but um, it had already set up for me emotionally, again, not logically, that I didn't really care what happened to her. I I would like to point out that when we see the woman as a MacGuffin, as you say, that is in fact still the bandit story that we hear that part. So that plays in... I thought the priest had testified because it started out right because it started. Well, out I guess it. All right. I guess it depends testimony. on which version you're talking about. Right. right? The, the version where he see where the bandit sees her walk by or just where the priest sees two people walking by. Right. I'm, I'm talking about with first the woodcutter. We see her. Then the priest. We see her. And in neither case, she has a face. And it's not until the bandit tells his story that we actually see that she's a person. But then she's not really a person. She's just an object of desire. Yeah, obviously, I like this is the rage of my feminist and queer film theory grad school class coming out right now. But it really it oh, please educate us oh, because yeah. to, to me, right, it's just like, oh, well, there is a woman with her face covered. And maybe this is just because of, you know, the culture that you know we live in right. and you know my male gaze and all that. But to me, that's not automatically um, dehumanizing, I guess. It, it, to me, it was just overly objectifying. And I did like, though, that even though the characters were saying, and I couldn't see her face, as someone who could see through the camera, you could get an idea of what she said. So I felt like that was okay. Let's we have this actress who's beautiful. So let's at least use that. But um, if from the narrative perspective, I didn't feel like she was as fully developed as I would have liked to have seen, especially, as I said, in contrast to the into the hyperbolized story and actions of the bandit. Yeah, she's the only, well, she's not the only female character in the movie, but the medium doesn't really count, I suppose, as she's just simply talking for someone else. Yeah, because she's the only female character with her own voice, and she's she testifies, too, that makes her, her say a little bit, presumably they're under oath, so that makes her, her say a little bit stronger um, than the medium who is literally having someone else speak through her mouth. Yeah, no, that's a, a great perspective. I just... I have a particular lens when I watch movies that are from a certain amount of time period back where I'm more waiting to applaud them for something progressive rather than like actively chastising them for not being. And that's just, I guess, how I've chose. I chose to watch this movie from the start where I was like, I just kept waiting for them to 
you know, give her a little bit more agency or give her a better perspective, and they never did. So I kind of shrugged it off and said, okay, well, they could have done something but didn't. I was going to say, you assigned this to me in a tricky place, too. Because as I said, I had finished Metropolis prior Mm -hmm. to this. And Metropolis does have really strong female characters and people who do have a lot more agency and a lot more power and like the literal ability to change their world. And so seeing that and then seeing a woman who way too many times in every version of events falls on the ground and cries helplessly, it's a pretty big contrast. But another thing that we haven't really talked about, too, is that not just from a filmmaking perspective from 1950, but it's a story told from feudal Japan. So exactly the question is, what sort of agency might she have even had in that time period to do anything? That's true, because I keep on thinking of it as being, well, this is 1950s, but it's not. You're right. right. It's like the whole cultural idea of, well, now that she's been raped, the man who raped her is supposed to marry her, or they're supposed to fight to the death over it, felt to me very much like, well, maybe that was something in feudal Japan that was like a thing. And I think the film did a really good job of establishing for Western audiences, like these are our ideals and these are how they play out and this is how honor works. And I did appreciate that a lot. I had no idea. But it is, I think, worth noting that this movie is not designed for Western audiences at all. No, that's true. when uh, Venice wanted to um, show something for their film festival, Japan wanted Japan to show something. Japan basically didn't have anything. And then someone, I think, on like one of the committees saw this film was like, oh, that'd be a great film. You should show Rashomon. And the general reaction was Rashomon. But that's for Japanese audiences. You, The West won't understand it. Right. And it's, then it just happened to be the case that the West really enjoyed it. Right. That's why it won the Golden Lion and the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film and stuff. So the third story, I guess, yeah. The the medium, or the, the samurai via the medium. Oh, that's right, yeah. So the samurai is, slash man, is dead. Yeah. So he can only speak through a medium at the the court trial. And I thought that was the best part of the movie. That's kind of freaked me out. Like, the voice <laughs> that came out of the medium's mouth. Yeah. And I didn't expect, like, I didn't have any reason to expect that happening in the movie. That one of the stories would be told essentially through a ghost. It was awesome. I, I have in my notes that I want to compare this to Hamlet. So we'll start here. With the, it's because it's the ghost of a dead person who comes back and is like, hey, I was murdered. Like people, <laughs> people should do stuff. But one thing that I should have talked about earlier that I found really Shakespearean was the beginning where you don't know what's going on. And there are these guys who are in the ruins of the gate. And they're like, there's been a lot of bad stuff that's happened. And they go through this list of like earthquakes, plagues, like food shortages, global warming. I don't remember what it all was. And global warming. Probably not global warming. No, that was not one of them. (laughs) But, But they go through and they're like, and despite all of this, there is this thing that was even crazier. And the, you're sitting there going, what, what is it? What is this thing that's going to happen Like that has happened already, but that you haven't told me about? And it gets you hooked in the same way show, so many of Shakespeare's plays start with like Hamlet, the, the guard, saying, like, this thing happens, and it's so crazy, and I wonder if it's going to happen tonight. And you're sitting there going, what is it? What's this thing? And then it's the ghost. So I was waiting for a ghost, given the beginning, um, just because, of course, everyone knows that Shakespeare's huge in Japan, and I'm sure that's where the influence came from. But um, Siri, I don't know that if was, that's sarcastic or not. That was me being sarcastic. <laughs> uh, but I, I literally have no idea how the Japanese feel about Shakespeare, other than that occasionally his works get adapted. I do know they love Wuthering Heights. I've met many people from Japan 
who are into Wuthering Heights, oh, which is kind of interesting. Somebody likes Wuthering Heights. I, mean, I also do. <laughs> this goes way back. Hey, I actually did not mind Wuthering Heights. Of the books we had to read in high school, Wuthering Heights was up there. Honestly, oh, that's not your normal story. This is this goes way back, uh, audience members, no, to no, high no. school. My, when no, no. my normal story is that Jane Eyre sucks. Oh, I thought it was <laughs> all Brontes. Yeah, because this no, is no, a running no. gag Heights in our lives. Okay. Um, but so. I, one thing that I do know is that uh, Masayuki Mori, the uh, the guy, the samurai, uh, did play Hamlet, I believe, or was in Hamlet oh, on that's a perfect. stage production. He actually, uh, so Mifune, I think, was, you know, he'd done some movies, but he wasn't really that well known. Uh, Takashi Shimura is not really that well known. But Masayuki Mori, he is a big Japanese film star at this point and a stage star at least according to donald ritchie who i have no reason at all to disbelieve <laughs> so i'm not crazy with shakespeare existing in the world of the filmmaker oh um, not at all. actually you're not and that will tie into one of my recommendations down the line but oh, yes. nice but i mean even if even if shakespeare had been unknown it is just kind of a good storytelling technique to start late and then have flashbacks and we see this in jj abrams and all kinds of other modern stuff now but the one thing I thought was interesting about the samurai story is that uh, how deeply affected he is by events. He's not the 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 stoic, noble, silent type, right? He's they literally show him crying, and he doesn't know. He's like, oh, he sort of has has like having an out of body experience of like I heard someone crying, and I didn't know, or I heard a noise, I didn't know what it was, and then you know he realizes, oh, it's actually him. It was. I think that was the most emotional of the stories, uh, not just for the audience, but for the characters. Maybe not. Because he even starts out like through the medium talking about how he is he's in some sort of dark place that he can't escape from. Like maybe he's stuck in the afterlife and this is his chance to, I don't know, somehow make amends. That's the impression I got from it is that he's really in a lot of pain wherever he is right now. Yeah. So he goes out of his way to tell this very melodramatic story about how much pain he's in because of what happened to his wife and he ends up killing himself which was kind of a surprise too that the mur- so everyone at at this point everyone admits to being the murderer which is kind of the crazy thing yeah every everyone says that they're the murderer which that's why it's the commoner because he never he never said he was so that's how you know he's guilty this isn't conspiracy corner, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> we can make it whatever we want, Adam. But I suppose. <laughs> well, the, inter- no, the interesting thing about the I didn't think about until now, though, is that the man says that, like, after he stab- stabs himself, that somebody comes and takes the knife out of him. So does that make sense that that would have been the woodcutter? Yeah, I think that's what we're supposed to believe. And actually, if you watch that scene the second time... Um, watch the woodcutter's reaction when this part of the story is being told. Because really? this isn't oh. a flashback, right? This is the medium. And you right. can sort of see on the woodcutter's face like slight apprehension at this point. As if, oh my gosh, am I going to be found out that I stole this knife? Well, that's the only thing that's really finalized, if, isn't it? At the end of the film, he let's see, he doesn't verbally admit it, but it's pretty clear right. that he did take the knife. So it's the yeah. only thing we know for sure. Yeah. But... Did it, did we ever find out what happened as a result of the court case? Uh, I don't know that we do. I think we can probably assume that Tajamaru was executed for his crimes. So, but I don't know that like it's ever explicitly uh, said. Yeah. Depends how much credence they give to the medium. 
<laughs> whether it's yeah, just something they put on for show or whether it's something they take a lot of stock in. Well, I well, think they allowed the, her to testify. Yeah, uh, yeah I guess so. Meant that we're supposed to believe this. And the fact that the samurai's, the man's voice comes from her mouth, right? Like, I, I think we're supposed to believe that she is trustworthy in as much as she is accurately relaying what the samurai believes to be true or claims to be true. She herself, the medium, is not changing or embellishing anything. Well, if the victim claims not to have been murdered, then I don't know yeah. how you could convict the bandit for that. Had that been done before with a voice coming out of someone else's mouth? Ugh, I don't, hmm. I mean, I'm sure there's instances, yeah. right? I can think of like offhand, like Laurel and Hardy comedies where stuff like that oh, happens. Yeah. But I don't know <laughs> how much that gets used in any sort of serious drama, right? Because I, I doubt how there's a lot of serious dramas where there's people talking through mediums, <laughs> right? So like you get the stuff like comedic effect, right? Where like, a little girl says something in a deep baritone voice, stuff like that. But, but yeah, I mean, I'd like to know how that played with audiences in 1950. Hopefully they were as terrified as I was. I was creeped out. I was watching it on an iPad in a dark room with headphones on by myself. (laughs) Uh, I think it is worth noting that uh, the woodcutter story is not actually in the original uh, Kutagawa story in a grove. It actually stops. It stops at the medium story. And then you as the reader are left to, you know, make your own inferences based on the three accounts. Which is perfect short story. I love short stories. I should have said that. They're like my favorite uh, type of literature. I don't think they always translate to film very well. But I guess it's up to the specific short story and how it's adapted. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's why they had for this movie, for instance, they had to add parts of Rashomon as a sort of framing story because when they just when the scriptwriter just did in a grove he's like he wrote it out and he's like this is barely an hour's worth of screen time we need more than just this so where did the baby come from in was that in Rashomon in the short no, the, story the baby's a, a a creation for this but we should hold off on the baby until we get through the woodcutter's tale I think right I think it's interesting that in the original Akutagawa story, right, each of the three testifiers admits that they're the one who committed the murder. And when you add the woodcutter and suddenly it's not that the woodcutter committed the murder, it's just that he actually witnessed more of the events than he initially claimed, right? Because as he says at one point, he didn't want to be involved. So he's the only one we see twice where we we know for sure that he's contradicting what he said earlier. So I guess he's the only one we know for sure is lying, not just based on the fact that it's not like everyone else's story, but it's not like his own story. Which I thought was great because the movie's really setting it up to be the real story, right? Like, oh, well, we know the woodcutter's trustworthy because he's the one who's framed everything and he seems like an honorable person. But then, yeah, when we get that twist at the end that... He's actually the one that we know is lying for sure. It kind of doubles down on the whole idea behind the story. That there's not any particular one version of events that's true. So unlike everyone else who claims responsibility, the woodcutter frames a story that it's everyone's responsibility in some sense. The woman in her trauma has goaded the two men into having a duel and neither of them is really excited about it. In fact, they're fighting in a very cowardly, clumsy way. Well... So first of all, I think before quite we get to there, I thought this was actually probably the part of the movie where I thought the woman had the most agency that she gets. That's true. I mean, there's the initial start, right, of where like she 
you know, basically gets rejected by each of them. And um, then she just starts like laughing and then just taunting them. Right. And goading them into having a fight that they clearly don't want to do. But, you know, like you're my husband, you should be man enough to defend me. And, you know, you you took away my honor and you said you were going to marry me or, you know, whatever. Right. Like you should be fighting for me, that kind of stuff. And they're both like clearly not into it. But for whatever reason, they decide to actually do the fight. It, well, it it kind of crosses over where it goes from her being kind of Lady Macbeth-ish, this isn't manly of you, and then it, it they do interact enough there to make it about them. So I do think that when they start fighting, it is personal for them and not about her anymore. But with the, just the way the fight scenes are shot, period, it reminds you that it's an old film because it is the wide angle princess bride style where you actually see the blades cross every time not the modern style where they change camera angles 50 times uh, throughout the fight so a better version yeah i would i would actually agree with you (laughs) um (laughs) i thought it was interesting how much the this fight almost resembles like a parody of the first fight oh yeah The, the, Yeah. the first fight is very noble where you know they slowly circle each other they make a a slash in and then pull back and you know they're warily dancing basically whereas this one you know they're tripping they're falling they're throwing dirt at each other yeah there's literally dirty fighting in this scene did you take it to be that they were missing each other on purpose or that it was just an exaggerated sense of what the fight was because there were a lot of times it was wildly missing each other in a way that might have been very close to impossible if you were making a genuine attempt. Oh, no, I think I, I took it as an exaggeration, right? Okay, just yeah. as a way to make it this clear, just how not really honorable this fight is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it did take me out of it a little bit because I did have to sit back and wonder, was this lazy filmmaking? And I didn't like having to think that. I, um, I really don't think it is at all. I, I think don't think it was. I think it's a genuine but... choice to make this, you know, because one of the things Kurosawa is about, right, is like that war isn't, glamorous right and so like the initial fight is like here's a very heroic sort of glamorous sword duel and then here's the woodcutter's version where he's you know he's still shown to be a liar but he doesn't have quite as much of an agenda at least as far as portraying these two in a positive light like he's he's not really going either way on that so much right because he's remains confused by the whole sequence of events right as the beginning he says he he doesn't understand at all what's going on and so this version of the sword fight right says well no sword fights aren't heroic and glamorous you know they're they're dirty and they're messy and they're clumsy and you know people die in them as a result of accidents and chance rather than because of superior skill or something like that or because it's the the right person dies or something like that and one thing that after I had the initial flash of is this poor filmmaking and I actually thought about it a little bit, it's that the first one was good filmmaking. I mean, the earlier fights, there was a good film fight. It was a I'm not left handed style of fighting. And I do think that the the woodcutters version was a more realistic in real life version of a fight and not the stylized version that we as modern audiences expect. Well, I, I also thought, too, that a lot of the overt clumsiness could have been... Also, this is the woodcutter story, right? So as he's telling it, he's making it out to be a little bit more over the top than it might otherwise have been. But all all of those things, all of those things, right? All I wanted to say was this was the version of events that was not under oath. It wasn't a testimony. 
future. So that even though it seems realistic and reasonable in a lot of ways, it it wasn't presented as truth. Necessarily. It was told to a priest. True. And, you know, in theory, like, there's no reason for the woodcutter to lie, except that as we sub, as the commoner astutely points out, he says, what happened to the pearl dagger that she had? And he's like, I know that you had to have stolen it, right? And I don't think you can fool me. And uh, that's about the time when the baby shows up. Yeah, which was deus ex machina at its finest. Um, it just appeared very conveniently at the perfect time for the story. Well, I've just been sleeping at that up to that point. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> of course. So it was established very briefly at the beginning of the film that this gate is the sort of place that dead bodies are dropped. And I guess apparently also unwanted children. So the deus ex here, the problem that this baby is meant to solve is something we haven't talked about yet, which is the priest's sort of crisis of faith that he's having. Right. So he's having a faith in just everyone. Yeah. In humanity, humanity in general. Right. Because as, as Amber said, everyone lies. Yep. And there's a dead person too, which makes the lying even worse. That didn't sound how I intended it to. <laughs> what I meant to say was the lying, the lying had serious consequences in the case of this story. It wasn't lying for no reason, which I'm sure happened a lot. There was a terrible outcome as far as the priest was concerned, where there was suddenly a dead person. So I think it's worth discussing why the baby's here at all. It represents hope. I'm sure this was in the symbols and allegories portion of Wikipedia that I did not read, but it's new life. It's a new dawn. It's the Christ figure. It's whatever you want it to be. And it's made to be ambiguous so you can attach meaning onto it. And I'm sure that's why. Sorry, what? You got really flippant. I know. It's because (laughs) I was about to say, this is why all of the film students probably love talking about this. You can devote a whole class to the symbolic representation of the child. This is there for people to speculate about. Or did you guys not feel that way? Because I totally thought that it was meant well, to have this. Well, it's, yeah, I, I, you're right. It is very deus ex because I think Kurosawa wanted it to end with a message of hope, right? And that's really the only way to do it is, well, you've got everybody lying about this story that happened before. So how can the priest actually regain his faith? And the only way is for him to witness himself personally like a good deed. So I don't know how else you get out of that situation if you want it to be a happy ending. Yeah, I think it's it's just a matter of, yeah, trying to make this not the bleakest of all movies. Right. Which it could have been. I mean, I still think it would have been good. I don't know how you would have ended it at that point, but... You would have ended it with... I don't the, disagree with you, Amber. I think storm. it is a little bit... You know, oh, yeah. I mean, the baby shows up and the storm ends. You could yep. have ended it with the clouds parting and the beautiful shot of a sun coming down. But why not? It, it focuses so much on what it is to be human and all of these questions of uh, humanity and goodness. So what embodies that perfectly? A baby who they starve to death on set to make cry. But um, it is not what happened. <laughs> convinced, I'm convinced they did not feed the child to make it cry. But Jeez. it was so hungry. Babies have different cries when they're hungry. Um, but you think there could have been maybe some establishing of some other... Some other method of redemption, 
other than just simply throwing the baby in at the very end, right? Baby hasn't been established. He just shows up. I mean, it, it's interesting. You can't take your eyes off the baby. When we were watching it, my husband was like, you see its little feet? Look at its little feet move. It, it helps with this, the world building and the cinematography and all of the visual stuff we were talking about earlier. If it's just the sun and clouds, it's not as interesting as a child. I mean, not that I can improve upon a classic film, but we could have had a shot of the woodcutter going home and you know, spending the money he got on the six kids he already has. Like, sure, he stole the dagger, but then he used it to like actually provide for his family. I mean, that's hopeful. But from a filmmaking perspective, you have to wrangle six kid actors in another <laughs> set. <laughs> okay, well, and, okay. And pay them all. I mean, the baby was probably free. They didn't pay those parents. They were like, do you want to have a kid in a movie? And they were like, yes. So it was okay. A so practically, yes. Way to do it. <laughs> I mean, Kurosawa's not known for taking the, the easy way out instead of making the better ending, right? As you will learn when we talk about The Greatest Showman, sometimes filmmakers run out of money and have to make cuts. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess that gate was expensive. We did talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Adam, what did you already talk about your thoughts about the baby? And Oh, no, I think you guys covered okay. it. It, it re- represents hope and it restores the priest's faith in humanity. And I think it's actually doing that with the combination of the rain stopping, right? That's actually a one-two punch there, right? I think just one, either one by itself wouldn't be as effective. No, I disagree with Adam. It's, I mean, I, let me enunciate. I just agree with Adam. <laughs> I think that's correct. If, oh, if the rain had just stopped, there would have been this. disagree. I know. It's, <laughs> it's that time in the sake bottle. I was so, like, how do you disagree with me? <laughs> if if the rain would have just stopped, the characters would have gone their separate ways. There would have been a, a disunity at the end. But because there was the baby there, they came together for this kind of beautiful moment and talk. They It, it gave them a chance to explicitly talk about hope and a better future and then go their separate ways. So it added a beat of, um, of hope. <laughs> And then Journey starts playing on the soundtrack. <laughs> so if only. Summarize, Amber, because I'm a little confused. Did you like that or did you not like that? I did not like the entire film because of the rape. Oh, okay. I just meant the baby, though. <laughs> no, there are aspects of it that I can talk about with a high degree of esteem. And the baby, I think, is at the top of that list. Oh, okay. Okay. Usually when I hear something referred to as a deus ex, it's in a minute, so almost dismissive way. At least in more modern, yeah. What about the video game? (laughs) That's true. (laughs) We should transition to talking about that, which I've been meeting (laughs) to the whole episode. (laughs) So let's talk about Adam Jensen for a while. (laughs) (laughs) When you have to ASX in films, it's not ideal. You can get away with it in literature a lot more. And so that was a reminder at the end that, oh, this is film as literature. This isn't Transformers Uh, or something along those lines. I have a feeling this might be a longer episode, but I think it will actually probably be worthwhile. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So far, we've recorded more time than the uh, movie actually ran. <laughs> oh, <nice>. oh, good. <laughs> that's, and I think that's part of the point of this. You're supposed to talk about this. The movie doesn't end when it ends. You're supposed to talk about it, just like with all short stories. That's why I love short stories. They're so ambiguous. And this had so much ambiguity in it that you can sit around and talk about it. And something that I don't think we've explicitly said that needs to be said is that death is inevitable. Everything leads to death. There's a reason it's about a murder and not about a a robbery, um, because death is the end. But in this case, with this film, the death is the beginning. 
that spurs the entire thing. And then it ends with birth. It's backwards. So for those reasons, it's good to talk about. But I don't know if it's good to watch. That's well put. Well put. Thank you. I give credit to the um, Nigori Unfiltered Saki for that (laughs) rant. So, Amber, overall, the movie, what did you think? Uh, Would you recommend this to other people? Yes, with conditions. I didn't like watching this movie. I thought it was pretty tedious. There's a whole lot of this walking through a woods and looking at people have melodramatic meltdowns and everything that I hate about modern film. But, but this like isn't talk- a modern film. I know. Thing, but I watch films for entertainment. I don't watch them at this point in my life to talk to you all about unless you email me on Friday <laughs> and say, let's talk about this movie. So right. Fair with, that, with that in mind... And knowing that I watch films for fun, um, I I do think this is great to talk about. It would be really good for a film as literature class. Um, I could see a lot of discussion in like film 101, film history. It's a very teachable movie, um, especially if, unlike me, you can get past the whole rape thing. Um, I, I have written in my notes that it is like Confederate statues in a way. It has a lot of problems with it uh, in terms of the rape. I'll just be explicit about that. Um, but it is something that's important. It belongs in a museum and we should be talking about it, especially for younger generations of filmmakers. They can see what started a lot of the things that they like in modern films, because this was we wouldn't have any flashbacks to the degree that we have them um, without this. So I do think it's important, but I don't think it's entertaining. Do You think Confederate statues are important? Well, no, how they're removing the Confederate, thank you for this clarification, how they're removing Confederate statues from places of prominence and putting them into museums where they have places where you can talk about them. This film has to be talked about. And I think that's an important distinction between just watching it for fun and watching it as an educational activity. So are you saying that much like the movement to take Confederate statues out of public places and putting them in museums is that we should sort of recontextualize this film? That's right. Thank you for putting the words in my mouth, Adam. We need to. <laughs> we need that to sounded so sarcastic to yet. <laughs> I know you meant it. <laughs> Just trying to match Adam's tone here. Um, Sorry, I can't control my tone. I, I know. <laughs> but no, I do think, I, I think, as you said, we've spent more time talking about this than we did actually watching it. That's what this film is for. It's for talking about and learning, not for watching and having fun. And now here's your opportunity to fight with me about that. Yeah. Let me uh, roll up my sleeves here, metaphorically, (laughs) um, and then say that I actually think I probably agree with you to a large extent. (laughs) Oh, nice. (laughs) Um, I will say that my initial reaction upon watching the film the first time, because like I said, I watched it twice. When we do like these these, uh, actually like intellectual podcasts about movies that aren't just, you know, What's the next Marvel movie in the Merry Marvel Movie March over on our sister podcast, right? Like movies that we're actually going to have like potentially deep conversations about. Um, I do tend to watch them twice. Um, And the first time I watched this movie, I was kind of left with a feeling of like, almost like, is that it? Like it left me sort of like wanting more, like almost empty in a way. And I was just kind of like, huh. It's not that I hated it, but I don't know that I enjoyed it that much. But I will say watching it the second time, admittedly with the commentary track on so that may have colored things but i do agree that to my modern eye there were moments when i my attention did wander a bit um but i 
did find that I appreciated a lot more what was going on and seeing the comparisons between like, you know, how Tajumar tells, tells his story versus how the woodcutter gives the version of events and stuff like that. And initially, like the first time I saw the baby and, you know, the first time watching, I was like, what the hell is going on with this baby? Just random <laughs> baby out of nowhere. I don't get it. Right. And then like reflecting on it and watching it a second time was like, oh, OK, I, I understand the the meaning here of what's going on. So um, I do think it's a movie worth watching. But I I, I agree with Amber in that it's it's not a movie that you sit your kids down in front of and is like, oh, here's a great samurai movie. Let's watch. Right? It's <laughs> like I think you could potentially do that with something like Yojimbo. Right. Um, you know, maybe your kids are a little older. Right. I wouldn't put like the six year old in front of it. But, you know, teenagers, 12 year olds, 13, 15, you know, like I think Yojimbo is a movie that you could watch, you know, kids could watch and enjoy. I think Rashomon is a movie that you need to watch sort of as an adult to really appreciate what's going on. And it's not necessarily a movie that's going to entertain you so much as, or at least, at least not in like the, uh, the visceral version of entertainment, like the way that like, like the way that like Jurassic world is like viscerally entertaining. Right. But there's not a whole lot of substance there. Um, this is a movie that like has a lot of substance and a lot of stuff for you to mull on. And I think it's worth seeing, but I think it's worth seeing when you're older and you have more experience and you've, you know, you've lived life a little more and you can, you have the capacity to think about these things. And you have friends to talk to about. And you have yes. friends to discuss it. With. Yes. So my familiarity with the Rashomon concept was basically from 90s, 80s sitcoms, more or less. <laughs> like all of them at some point would have like a Rashomon style episode where they have the same story told from different perspectives. So I guess I was expecting it to be a little less subtle than it was. I, I think just analyzing the character motivations for each different story is pretty fascinating like the stories don't really end up the way that like, if i had those characters and that set up i'm not sure i would have designed the stories in the exact same way that they were designed in this movie like how they're each time trying to protect their own pride or their sense of the way the world is supposed to work or protecting other people at the same time but it kind of goes to what you're all saying too where it's like well it was a nice movie to appreciate but i did find my mind wandering a little bit during it and it was over sort of quickly. Otherwise, I, I agree with everything. I think we all we're all on the same page today. <laughs> That's good. It is. That's very rare. It seems like. Well, it's just La La Land. I think <laughs> was the big sticking <laughs> point. <laughs> we have trouble well, getting away from. Uh, and then just so I just regarding a previous episode I was on, just sure. for the record. Um, and I, I I told this to Charlie via text, but although at the time regarding Alphaville, when I first said it like watching i was like i don't know if people should watch this i will say that it's a movie that i still think about it's a movie that has stuck with me and, and i feel like i feel like rashomon is similar to that. like that this is a movie that's going to stick with me yeah that i'm going to think about even if i necessarily didn't think oh this was super exciting like oh it was better than jurassic world i loved it so much right but and that, I love, like like kid reaction i loved listening to you all talk about alphaville and i haven't seen it but that was one of my favorite episodes because it, there was so much you could talk about because it was so stylized and had a lot of the same things going on that Rashomon or seemed to based on me listening to you talk about it, that it, it made for one of your more compelling episodes, I think. And so hopefully people will enjoy listening to this one, not just because I'm on it, but because we talk about things. Maybe it can be for both reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so you're so you're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. 
that for right. me forcing you all to watch Rashomon. <laughs> it was a good choice. And I, I should tell everyone, too, that I agreed to this not knowing what I was going to watch. So it worked out. Yep. That's why Greatest Showman is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Is Adam roped into this, too? No. Okay. I can't speak for him. I <laughs> we made the deal without his knowledge, so. <laughs> uh, if you can do it on a Friday night or a Sunday night, otherwise, probably not. That is a yes. Adam's going to do it. Then. Actually, it's quite possible. Adam Thank would like the agreeing. Greatest Showman. I mean, he I likes musicals. He I want to hear yeah. you talk about it. Uh, perfectly honest. The two reasons that people bring up, because I, I didn't see it right. The t- people that when people bring up Greatest Showman, I'm like, eh. Is first of all that I heard from reviews that it's pretty broad and it's not very nuanced at all at least as far as like how pt barnum actually was oh it's not historical at all it's magical realism it's like amelie you don't compare it to like whatever biopic the 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 other the other reason that i was really hesitant on greatest showman is because it's the same lyricist and songwriter as la la land and i it is i i oh yeah I don't think I despise La La Land, though. Yeah, I don't think I sufficiently described how much I dislike La La Land, although I keep trying over and over again. (laughs) To be clear, I saw La La Land for free on an airplane, and I still felt ripped off after seeing it. (laughs) So, whereas I saw The Greatest Showman, mind you, my children actually made this decision for me. I saw it three times in eight days at the theater. So there's a big difference. (laughs) Okay. I'm, I will say, if you have not already listened to the Gobeski Wallace Report episode, where we interview Charlie Wallace from Cinematic Respect, um, <laughs> they will have. They I will think, have. Right. If, if you haven't done that, do that. Because I, if nothing else, uh, I think I'd actually probably get across my feelings about why I have such problems with La La Land clearer there than I did in the actual La La Land episode. You all were a lot nicer in that one than I would have been. If I had been a guest, <laughs> I think that's partially because we cut out a lot of the really angry <laughs> moments because <laughs> there were some there were some bitter feelings at the end of that. Just like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Adam, for <laughs> introducing all of us to this movie. Now it's the part of the show where we all get to recommend something to the world that we think they should experience. Amber, why don't you go first? Thank you, Charlie. Um, you all shouldn't watch films because you should read books. <laughs> yeah. That's, 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 that's being completely cut. Fine recommendation. <laughs> because, well, see, this is where Adam's going to maybe backtrack. But you should read books because I've written books and you can buy them on Amazon. Um, my first book is called Cauldron's Bubble. It came out just over a year ago. It's basically Shakespearean fan fiction for Young adults was the intent, but I think that most of my audience is 30 and above at this point. But um, I had wanted to say that my book, Cauldron's Bubble, has a lot of the same elements as this film because it has conflicting narratives, unreliable characters, characters without a moral compass, flashbacks. So in my list of things that I liked about Rashomon, a lot of them are in my own book as well. Um, And then I have another book, the sequel to that, coming out October 1st, 2018, and that's called Double Double Toil. They're both on Amazon. I'm on Twitter, too. You can find me. It's at Amber Elby, A-M-B-E-R-E-L-B-Y. And um, if you tweet at me, I will say hi to you, but I will not change my opinion about Rashomon, so don't even fight me. So this week, my recommendation is a 2018 movie 
called The Tale, which I think got very limited release, but it's it's on HBO now, starring Laura Dern, which I thought about because it's also a story that has an unreliable narrator in a very different sort of way where she is a character. So upfront, you should know that this is a story that uh, about sexual abuse, but it's about her remembering her childhood and her perception of what happened to her as a child changing as the movie goes on. So I just thought it was an sort of an interesting juxtaposition with this movie where what's being represented on the camera certainly is not exactly what really happened and changes as the as the film goes on. So if you've got HBO, give it a chance. All right. I have uh, two recommendations. My first recommendation is related to the film we watched. Um, I'm going to recommend another Kurosawa film. And since Amber's here, I'm going to recommend the 1957 movie Throne of Blood, which is Macbeth in Japan. In it Fuel, is. Japan. Yeah. That's a good one. If I'd recommended a film, I would have recommended that. Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed that film the last time I saw it, which has been a few years, but I, I recommend that film. And then the other movie I'm recommending, I'm basically just recommending so that I can be the one to recommend it and no one else. <laughs> so purely selfishly. But I'm going to recommend one of my favorite movies, and that's the completely different from Rashomon, but that's the 2010 film Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Oh, okay. I just rewatched that not too long ago. I I love that movie. I I think that movie is probably suffers in that it's targeted almost specifically at my micro generation. So our micro generation, what I think we're calling Xennials now or something like that. Hmm. Right. The the older millennial crowd. Right. I think Scott Pilgrim versus the world is speaks directly to us. And I adore that movie. It was birthed in Austin, supposedly. Um, supposedly, the there was talk in a comic book store. Uh, amongst some of the filmmakers here in town that were like, we should make this into a movie, but how would we do that? And then it became a movie. That's another movie whose uh, main character kind of has a skewed perspective of himself. So I don't think it's completely unrelated. Sure. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks. I appreciate the help. <laughs> I have to tie everything together. <laughs> I can't help myself. It would be nice if that were true, but I'm looking back at your recommendations here and seeing that's not true. <laughs> But yeah, so upcoming episodes to look forward to include apparently The Greatest Showman and uh, Blade Runner 2017. 20. Sorry. (laughs) Blade Runner 2049 from 2017. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, wait, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) Blade Runner 2049 coming up. I think we're going to try and do a a Jacques Tati trilogy at some point. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. So because apparently, oh, foreign film. Let's get Adam in. (laughs) <laughs> well good you keep us yeah you keep us honest but uh on behalf of myself and yeah let's say jessica too i was adam Gavesky, your executive producer and one of your guests and i was charlie wallace thank you very much for being on the show adam and i'm amber elby i'm here to get these guys to watch the greatest showman <laughs> thank you to you as well thank you once we've done that episode will you ever come back Oh, yeah. There will always be future Greatest Showman style films that are good that you all refuse to see. (laughs) Because everyone lies. Yep. Everyone lies. (laughs) 
but going I think... back to Hamlet, there's this line <laughs> that isn't that house? I Didn't not... I say that in house? <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> Speaking of Shakespearean style television, but um, there's a line from Hamlet that I may or may not get a tattoo of that is, <laughs> it's doubt truth to be a liar, which I love so much. Just everyone lies. Don't even believe truth. <laughs> I kept on thinking of that with this film, too. It's a, that's a very alt-right position to take in this day and age. <laughs> <laughs> just, truth isn't truth, right? You could just get that tattooed on you. Oh, I should just translate it into fake news and have that instead. There everyone wants a tattoo of fake news. Maybe it's like a tramp stamp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm right, speaking so for this, myself, not you, Adam. So this isn't getting used. 